Hola mi gente and welcome to Clever Hybrid Season 2, Episode 8. This episode is with our family friend Cesar Vesquez. He's a real estate lawyer based in Puerto Rico. So we're going to hear a lot about the Boricua gente today. Thank you so much, Cesar, for making the time to be with us today. It's my pleasure and it's great seeing you. I, I know you since you were one. I'm really happy and honored to be with you here today and see you grown up being a great woman and doing so many wonderful things. So thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you. I was glad that you accepted this. A pleasure. With your particular background, being Puerto Rican, as we were talking about a little bit before we started the interview, Puerto Rico is very unique when compared to the rest of Latin America. It's part of the U.S., but it's also part of the Caribbean, and then they have a lot of other influences. There's a lot of Chinese and also Lebanese and other influences that are there as well. How does that affect the culture? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm pretty sure if you ask any Puerto Rican, they will have a different answer for it. Because being Puerto Rican, being the oldest colony in the world, because we are a, a U.S. territory, makes us unique in, in, in many respects. We are a Spanish-speaking island in the Caribbean that belongs to the U.S. We are U.S. citizens since 1918, and we have fought in every U.S. war since World War I. It's interesting, we are the largest demographical or ethnicity in the U.S. armed forces. So we have a disproportionate amount of Puerto Ricans in the U.S. military. So a lot of Puerto Ricans have died and spilled their blood on behalf of the U.S. So every time that somebody talks about our citizenship, the typical Puerto Rican answer is that we have earned that with blood, sweat and tears, because we continue to be in the U.S. armed forces in disproportionate amounts. That makes us a unique ethnicity in the U.S. because we are U.S. citizens, we speak Spanish, and we have a unique blend. We are white, we're black, we're Native Indians. Actually, let me tell you something interesting. I did the Ancestry.com DNA thing. Hmm, okay. I am 66% Spanish, 16% Native American, like Indian, like Native Puerto Rican, and 18% Black. What? <laughs> I am a uh, black, white, blue-eyed guy because that's the way Puerto Ricans are. If you look for the Puerto Rican DNA, it's always a mix between European, Taino, the indigenous Indian, and, and blacks. Our food is black-based. That's why Puerto Ricans can get away with many things with the African-American community that pretty much not other Latin American countries can, also like Cubans or the Dominicans. We have this unique thing and, and we can relate to it. It, it. it feels good. Our music, our traditions are very influenced by our blackness. It's interesting me talking about that, but when I look at the areas where in the African-American country where I was, they're all Western areas like Kenya, Nairobi. So I have ancestors from those areas and it would be great to meet them <laughs> to see who they are and how they look like that's just flavors and color who we are how we see the world i don't care what people you know, might say but we, we don't look at people 
by the color of the skin. We don't, in my experience. And when I was growing up, when I was in kindergarten, uh, I had uh, friends who were black, still are my friends, white, Chinese, Cubans, Dominicans. And that was in my first grade. And I'm 51 years old. So that's what I have seen. Actually, one Japanese guy. I don't know what he was doing in my hometown, but he was there in my class. He was one of my best friends. His father married a Japanese woman during the Korean War. She moved to Puerto Rico with him. And, and that's how he, Japanese American, came to be in my hometown. So when you look at Puerto Rican, we don't see people in colors. We see who they are, not by the color of the skin. We are Hispanics because we speak Spanish, but we don't consider ourselves Latin Americans in the actual definition. We are not part of Latin America in the sense that we're not connected to the South American continent. We feel more Caribbean. If I was going to define who we are, we are a Afro-Caribbean country. And we're proud of that. We like to be Caribbean. You know, we like the laid-back attitude, our music and sports and food and climate. It's very unique. That's why we feel more in tune with the Dominicans and the Cubans. Not much with the West Indies. We are not that connected to Barbados or Aruba or the British Islands. That's not who we are. We are the actual bigger Caribbean islands. Uh, that's Cuba, Dominican Republic, Haiti, and Puerto Rico. That's more of who we are. Okay. Yeah, it's like the, the same neighborhood. But it must have been a big culture shock when you came to the U.S. for college, where most Latinos, like you said, are not, at least try not to be as colored conscious in America. If you have even one great-grandparent who is Black, then you're Black. Yeah. So yeah. it creates a lot of discrimination. We have what's called the black tax yeah. for being brown, the pink tax for being a woman, and right. what I like to call the purple tax, which is when people consider you other, you're not from here. Did yeah. you ever have to deal with the purple tax? Yeah, I did many times. When I went to college, I attended Penn State University in Pennsylvania, and it was a cultural shock. I didn't have any expectations, to be honest. I thought that I knew English when I got there, but I knew none. Zero. After 12 years of English in my school, uh, I thought that I knew the language and the dialects, but I didn't. It was tough at the beginning. I had to drop out of some classes because I didn't understand what they were saying. The professors were very hostile when it came to somebody who were, who were not a native English speaker. And some people call me speak a couple of times because they saw me talking in Spanish, particularly in the center of the state. You feel a lot of antagonism against anybody who is not white. Mm. I have a couple of really funny stories about that. First of all, I didn't know what speak was. When somebody called me speak, I didn't know what it was. And it's a derogatory term to identify anybody who is a Spanish speaker. Oh, I didn't okay. know what it was. I never heard it before because I come from an island. I'm a majority in Puerto Rico. So I, I never felt a minority. I've never felt a minority in my life mm -hmm. because I'm, I was coming from Puerto Rico. So I, I didn't have that mentality. So when that guy said speak, it was a guy from the lacrosse team. 
I didn't answer, which is the interesting thing about words. If you don't know what they are, they're just words. It didn't affect me. It affected my friend at the time. She turned around and she started screaming something. I said, oh, what are you doing? And she said, you didn't hear what, what he said to us? I said, no, he called us speak. Well, what is that? Well, that's a derogatory word for people that are Spanish speakers. I said, I'm sorry that you told me that. You should have told me because I didn't know. Mm. And it would have been nothing. It's just a word. I have learned in my lifetime experience in the U.S. that I don't care what you say because words, they, they don't kill you. That's your opinion. I remember I, I worked as a uh, sales representative for Procter & Gamble in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That was tough because I, I had to go to these towns outside of Pittsburgh. The majority of the supermarket managers that I had to sell products from Procter & Gamble, they were very racist. Yeah, it's hard uh, in the rural areas sometimes. Yeah, it's, it was bad. They loved Roberto Clemente, but they hated Puerto Ricans. <laughs> he was a black Puerto Rican and they loved Roberto Clemente. Anybody can tell you who they were when Roberto Clemente hit the 3,000 hit and when he died, but they hated Puerto Ricans. In, in that area, at least at that time. So I remember this guy, an older guy, he was probably in the 50s or 60s, like my age right now. And I was at that time 20. He said something like, oh, you should go back to your country and you should speak American or something like that. Some of those nonsense that you hear all the time. And I said, you know what? I am so sorry that your education failed you. Oh, burn. <laughs> like, what are you saying? And then I started speaking Spanish. I said, you know, yo lamento tanto que tú no sepas lo que yo estoy diciendo. And he said, what are you saying? Yeah, I, I'm, that's the point. You don't speak two languages. Oh, burn. says that ouch. Yeah, I said, I'm <laughs> sorry for you. I'm sorry that you are limited only to your English language, but I'm here and you cannot say the same about going to Spain or any other country because we are the third largest language in the world. So I'm sorry for you. And, and I left it there. I didn't go back. I told my supervisor at that time, he said, don't worry, don't go there anymore. I will we'll send somebody else. But I said, I don't mind going back because I know who I am. Obviously, he hasn't been exposed to anybody but white people in this town. For all your viewers and listeners who speak other languages, don't feel bad about it. Embrace your accent. If you can learn other accents, even better. If you can learn to be an Englishman or a Welsh or, or Scottish, who cares? That would be even more for you. Don't think that learning language is bad. It's the opposite. That's why I like the Puerto Rican attitude of not letting anybody dictate what language you're going to speak. Uh, I feel sorry for the initial immigrants that came to the U.S. They blended, but they still discriminated. The Polish, the Italian-Americans, they're still discriminated for who they are. So why loosen who you are if you're going to be discriminated anyways? So embrace it. You will enjoy your life better when you are 
multicultural as opposed to a one-sided version of whatever you think you are. That's my two cents on, on cultural diversity. That's be who true. you are. You're going to be better. It's always more fun to be a clever hybrid. And the accents still come in hand for parties and such. I mean, when, when I met you, you I carried you in my arms. I immediately became friends with your parents. I consider uh, Gene one of my best friends. And, and, and whenever I have any problems, I always go to him. He's a really smart guy. And he taught me so many things. I, I, I mean, a debt of gratitude to him. He switched. He, it was the opposite. He went from a unicultural to multicultural. And you went one step ahead of that by learning <laughs> Eritrean language and all these other languages. You learn obviously from your parents because they embrace that multiculturalism. And I remember meeting with your parents and sitting down and there were people from El Salvador and Colombia and Cuba. It was a blend of people and we have Panamanians and we had such a great time. I, I, I tell my wife that's probably the happiest moment that I can recall in my life when I was in Washington with your parents. I was really happy, rejoicing being there. That's what you get when you get outside of your comfort zone and embrace something new. Yeah, we had a good time. It was nights full of salsa, merengue, bachata, cumbia, and having tamales, papusas, arepas, right. and al pastor all in the same day. <laughs> I learned that when I got there to Washington, pupusas, I didn't know what it was. And la pacha, you remember pacha? Pacha is the bottle, the bottle for the babies. Yeah. That the Salvadorian says, pacha, we call it in, in Puerto Rico, we call that bibi. They call it pacha. And I remember that because I, that was another cultural shock when I got there and started meeting the Central Americans. It was great. I had a great time learning about these foods. So kudos for that. Kudos for taking it to the next level. Well, thank you. I'm enjoying it. I'm sure you will. Well, let's get a little bit into your expertise on a business level here. Right now, Puerto Rico has taken a hit in a lot of different ways. They had Irma and Maria in 2017. There's an increase in online ordering, and now the pandemic is making it much harder to use public spaces like malls and offices. What do you think these different industries need to do to adapt to this situation? They're forgetting one. We got earthquakes this year too. In January, we started with earthquake. We, we felt one yesterday, 5.1. Wow. That was really strong. I haven't felt that one since uh, January. That was tough. And then we got the pandemic. So we have been on a roll with the climate change and a lot of things going on. Plus, maybe you have seen that the president has been very vocal against Puerto Rico for the last three and a half years. So we have to endure a lot. And that's why I like about Puerto Rico. We're resilient. We had Maria, and I've never experienced that before. Nobody in a hundred years experienced something like Maria. Nobody in a hundred years has experienced in Puerto Rico something like the earthquakes that we had, or we're still having. According to the U.S. Geology Service, we're going to continue to move for the next 10 years. So we have taken it in strides. We were four months without electricity. We are the world record. We're in the Guinness World Records for the longest period of time without electricity. That was tough. It was tougher than the pandemic. 
it was like a bomb exploded in Puerto Rico. You saw destruction everywhere. It was really, really bad. We don't have as many options as people have in other parts of the world. I cannot take a car and drive somewhere else. People in the U.S. or in Europe, they're driving to different places. Right. They're doing domestic road trips. They do domestic uh, tourism. We cannot get outside of our island. So real estate has to adapt because we're, we're so small and we have so limited options. We don't have like huge national parks and we don't have other places to go. So real estate, particularly malls, still have a very important role to play in the Puerto Rican economy. And we are very tourism dependent. So uh, hotels are still pretty much 20% occupied. Having said that, we're seeing an increase in the industrial side because of Trump's administration, public policy towards China and other places. They're bringing back some of the manufacturing facilities and pharmaceutical companies hmm. back to uh, the U.S. Puerto Rico is uniquely positioned to do that because we used to be the number one pharmaceutical country in the world. So we have all the infrastructure in place and we are a U.S. territory so we don't have the federal taxation on it. So we're seeing a, a renewal activity in the industrial park. I mean, the beginnings of the reopening of the pharmaceutical industry in Puerto Rico, mainly because they don't want to depend on other countries, the U.S., for their national security. They don't want to depend on Ireland or China or some of the other places or Singapore where some of the pharmaceutical companies went out from Puerto Rico and moved to those places. They want to bring them back, particularly U.S. pharmaceutical companies. They want them to be here in the U.S. so they can control the amount of medications that are produced, as opposed to depending on somebody else to buy it and then bring it back to the U.S. So it's a national security issue now. So globalization brought that to the forefront. And now the U.S. government are realizing this is great. Globalization is great, but up to a point that it might harm our national security interest. So we're seeing some industries coming back to Puerto Rico, some manufacturing, pharmaceuticals, biohealth, biotechnology are coming back. So we're going to be okay. Furthermore, the penetration of the credit card is not that great in Puerto Rico as in the U.S. So even though Amazon is making strides like never before, true. The majority of the people in Puerto Rico don't have access to credit cards or bank accounts. So they will continue to go to the shopping areas. So the, the U.S. is accelerating more. And if you talk to any Chinese, they're going to say, yeah, the U.S. is like five years behind us because everything in, in China is online. So the U.S. is lagging China in online technology. We are in Puerto Rico behind the U.S. and Latin America is behind Puerto Rico in everything that is related to the impact of the online business on the real estate sector. So I'll see that we have still like a couple of years ahead until the penetration will be so significant that we will have to recreate or refurbish or repurpose these spaces to become colleges, churches, hospitals, or housing, something along those lines, or fulfillment centers, so that you have this on the channel, you can buy it online and pick it up 
in, in a fulfillment center in your local town. That's how I, I'm seeing it in the next five to 10 years. I'm looking at it between now and, and 2030. 2030 will be a pivotal point in many respects, particularly with the online purchases and the fintech and all these areas that will be more pervasive, will be everywhere. It will be difficult to continue with things as they were before the pandemic. The pandemic has accelerated all, all of these changes. Definitely. With some of the clients I'm working with in LATAM, as you said, a lot of them are getting funding from the U.S. or China to continue growing their enterprises. More and more people are trying to find a way to have a bank account, whether it's in an app on their phone or having, as you said, a credit card. So the, the penetration is going up, but it will take some time. Yes, that's exactly right. China, they didn't have any banking infrastructure and they didn't have any postal service infrastructure 15 years ago when the internet started. The new opportunities are in the whole African continent because they are embracing mobile applications and mobile payments right from the get-go. They're buying the smartphones, they're opening their accounts, and they have these debit cards, and they are embracing them faster than the Western economies because we're still using the fiat currency, the dollars, or the credit cards. For example, China has Alipay, which is a subsidiary of Alibaba. It's used on a daily basis by 900 million people. Pretty much all of them are in China. And just think about how they're everywhere. Even if you're selling a, a bottle of water on the street, you will pay through Alipay. Wow. Uh, that's completely different from the experience in Latin America, Puerto Rico, and some parts of the U.S. So we are lagging behind in that. It will take us maybe seven years to get there. We will get there. But the Chinese are very ahead of, of that curve. And real estate is, is going to be impacted. How, in, in what ways? It's too early to tell. It's impossible to know how all the, the digitalization is going to work out. Hotels could be part of the Airbnb experience. They could be sold as apartments and then rented to travelers or who knows. The whole digitalization and the tokenism, like the cryptocurrency, is, is going to have an impact on how we even own real estate. We could own a fraction of a real estate as opposed to just buy the whole thing. I'll use it when I want to. And then I will discard it when I don't want to. That's where the economy is moving. Well, I'm a huge fan of education. I met you because I was doing my master's degree at that time in law at Georgetown. I don't believe in that at all. I, I, I think that the new economy requires people with a specific skills. You can learn that through some online course and through what you're doing right now, these experiences. And they will be more enriching and they will be more practical and, and, and realistic than going through the whole college experience. When you get out, you will end up with a student debt. It might be already obsolete when you get out and it will not be relevant because you have no working experience. So my experience 30 years ago with college is completely different from what I'm looking at it right now. I started homeschooling with my son three years ago. I'm helping my son to address the things that he likes to do. They're all technology oriented. 
So why waste your time in doing something else that you're not going to use? You're going to pay for it. The, it will be completely useless at the moment you're out of college. You can take whatever course you want in coding, in digital economies, Photoshop, or whatever you want to do. And you can learn it online. Why do you have to go to college for that? We have this holistic way of learning now. And your viewers are your age. Embrace it fully. Don't go to college. Go to a community college and take a couple of courses and then get out. It will be a lot cheaper and more meaningful than going through the whole SATs and going to college and, and spending all that money for something that when you get out, like it happened to me, you'll say, well, you know, completely useless. So I like what it's going on now with education. You learn on your, at your own pace and you learn what you like, where your interests are, not, not what somebody else has 50 or 100 years ago said that you should be studying. That's true. I can definitely see that as well. Like all of the great people that we look up to from the past, Benjamin Franklin, Leonardo da Vinci, Ibn Patuta, none of them went to what we consider a college. They focused on things that they wanted to learn. We're going back to that model, which is very interesting to see. But instead of traveling extensively like they had to, we can do all that from home. It's amazing. That's right. Steve Jobs, he took a couple of classes. One of them, he said, I read his biography. He said that one class that he took in Reed College in California was calligraphy. Mm -hmm. Because of calligraphy, he's the one who came up with the idea of the font on the Apple Mac. So one course changed the personal computing industry. One course by one guy. So that's how I like it. It's a more holistic humanistic approach. I read what I like. I enjoy reading and collecting books. And I've been like that since I was a kid. I, I like reading history. And nobody has to tell me about that. I, I do it on my own. And I take a couple of courses online and I, I enjoy doing that. And I can do it at any time. I keep getting all these great courses. I'm taking, for example, a, a, a chess class from a guy from Venezuela who lives in Spain. Wow. Okay. He's my, he's my <laughs> coach and I'm taking classes online. I pay him a couple of dollars and I'm learning chess with my son and I'm learning a couple of other classes. I made a, a concerted effort this year to learn different things. It just happens that the pandemic has helped me achieve those goals faster. Mm-hmm. Going back a little bit to what you were mentioning here with the humanistic approach and then also goal setting, those people that we mentioned, Ben Batuta, one of the reasons why they were so successful is because they spoke the dominant language of their area. So right now, the dominant language worldwide is English. Why is it important for Hispanics, especially Puerto Ricans who are already in the U.S. system as citizens to improve their English? Yes, that's a great question. It's freeing. If you can learn more than two, do it. Why limit yourself to two? But if you're going to choose a a, a second language to learn, English is a language to learn. The largest spoken language in the world is Mandarin. But even in China, if you know English, you can communicate with a lot of people, particularly the business people. They speak English. 
if you go to Africa, there's a lot of countries in Africa that speak English as their native language. If you go to Europe and you go to Germany, they speak very English than many Americans. If you go to any of the European countries, Latvia, Azerbaijan, Poland, Kazakhstan, in Eastern Europe, all these post-Soviet Eastern European countries, they speak English. Right. Uh, so if you want to move around in the world, English is a better language than any other one because it's a language of business. Just like in Roman times, they spoke Greek. That language was spoken through the whole Roman world. People from the Middle East, they had to learn it because that was the language of the empire. The current superpower is the U.S., whether you like it or not. The English language is the language that they use, and they use everywhere. You know what I'm doing now? I, I'm hiring a dialect coach. Hmm, okay. Which dialect are you learning? Uh, no, I'm American English. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but which one? Like Northern American? Northern. Southern? Yeah, Northern. Yeah, Northern. Mm -hmm. I like the Northeast English. I don't like the Southern English. I mean, I like it. It's interesting, but it's more difficult for me to learn it. I like the Northeast. And once I'm done with that, I will start learning to speak as an Englishman. I like that. I like the English language as it is spoken in London. So even if you're learning English, you can learn different dialects, different accents within the English language. That's the fun about languages. You can be anybody and anywhere. Actors do that all the time. Right. <laughs> uh, so that's where the idea came from because I, I was watching this actress from Ireland learning an American accent. She said, I have to thank my dialect coach that helped me so much to, hmm, that's interesting. I, you know what? Let me learn a couple of accents. I'm beginning to do that. And I like accents. Uh, I think they are part of who you are. And if you embrace them, you will be a more interesting person. You will find somebody who will make fun of your accent. Don't worry about them. They're just ignorance. And you don't want to be with them anyways. Yeah, uh, they have their own issues. Exactly. <laughs> don't even waste your time with the ignorance. Because deep down, they know who they are. And they feel bad about themselves. That's why they are making fun of you. That's what bullies do. They, their insecurities are being projected onto others. I like my accent. I don't care. You know, My accent is what defines me. And as part of my personality, I'm trying to add accents to my repertoire so that I could be more interesting. <laughs> That's a really good idea. To wrap up what you've been saying here, what would be... The the key takeaway that you would want the listeners to take from this conversation? I will tell you that if there's one thing for this year, which is a unique year, and we're going to be like this for a while. It's going to be a couple of years. Do goals, goal crafting. Don't do like a wishful list. Don't do that. Do 25 things that you want to do for a year and then pick the top five out of the list of 25. Pick the top five that you want to do. And do that for your personal life, health, and business. Hmm. So 
then you divide that by quarters. And when you define the, the goal, underneath you have to put what is the tactical thing you have to do in order to accomplish that goal. So let's say that I want to improve the net operating income of our commercial property. So in order for me to do that, I need to sign three new lease agreements, commercial agreements for the whole year. If I do that, I will be able to accomplish my goal. So what I have to do, so I have to cold call or contact some commercial real estate uh, realtors and start talking to them and draft the agreements and sign agreements and open the stores so that I can have the income. So those are the tactical things that you have to do throughout the year. You don't have to accomplish your yearly goals. Then on Sunday, I will compare that weekly list with my quarterly goals. And my quarterly goals have to be in tune with my yearly goals. So everything that I'm doing on a daily basis has to be in sync with my weekly goals, my quarterly goals, and my yearly goals. When you break it down on a daily basis, then you know if you are making any progress or not. Because if you leave it like, oh yeah, I want to learn a new language. Well, well, how are you going to do that? I want to know by the end of the year, this much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to have a, a actual conversation with somebody naturally without thinking about it. Like I'm speaking my native language. Not let me think it in, in my language and then translate it. No, it will have to be like a natural experience. So if you want to do that, then you have to do classes, practices, and you have to put that in your agenda. Otherwise, it would just be another missed opportunity. That's what I'm doing. That's what I do every single year. And I have one day for that, the 6th of January. That's that's your planning day? Yeah, that's my day for my goal setting. I separate five hours and I really do that deep work right at the beginning of the year. Then I do a mid-year to see if I have to adapt. This year I had to do it because everything got screwed up because of the pandemic. So I had to redo it. But you know what? Right now, I'm one goal away from meeting my 2020 goals that I wrote in January 6th, 2020. Nice. I had eight goals for the year. And I'm almost there. So that means that even when you have things that might look like they can be disruptive, if you know what your north is, what your north star is, what your goal is, and you can break it down in pieces, then you can always adapt to the situation because you know what your end goal is. If you're listeners to your viewers, if you're thinking about doing something, write it down, put it in a journal and start doing these segments divided in, in, in categories so that you can feel that you're accomplishing something on a monthly, weekly, yearly basis. On that way, you, you will be able to accomplish more than you, you can even think. Yeah, planning backwards is definitely a really yes. good strategy. Thank you so much, Cesar. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, get more of this wisdom out of your brain from all this experience, where can they get in touch I, with you? I'm always open to do that. They can Skype me if they want to. Red, as in the color red, Red Partners, PR at Outlook.com. Red okay. Partners, PR at Outlook.com. Dot com. They can look me up and I'll be more than happy to uh, share something, whatever they want to share. 
All right. And you're also on LinkedIn and Twitter as well, right? That's right. My handle on Twitter, it's, I don't use it that much, but I do, at Sevasmo, C-E-V-A-Z-Z-R-A-M-O, which is Cesar Vasquez Morales, Sevasmo. That's my handle on Twitter. LinkedIn is my go-to place. That's the only social media that I am active on. I made a pledge this year that I was going to drop Facebook or Instagram, and I have you know tons of time now. I'm more of a you know, LinkedIn kind of guy. I write there a lot and make comments on opinions and about real estate and on other matters. If you have any comments, feel free to reach out to LinkedIn. Well, thank you so much. And Vigente, this is a new milestone. It's our first guest from the Caribbean. So really enjoyed that. <laughs> really happy to be the first guy from the Caribbean. Yeah, you represent it. You did a good job. Thank But you. Until next time, keep learning by doing and asking. Hasta pronto. Ciao.